Here we go. Now we're recording. Okay, so once again, uh, for those of you who are just uh, joining us, I just uh, did the, uh, the greetings for Esther Sunday. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to start off by sharing a story. And I've shared this, I shared this story with you uh, before, but I think it personally testifies to me uh, exactly what we're talking about in this situation. That, that is that God operates uh, not like we'd expect. Um, and we should almost be expecting that when God uh, answers our prayers or, or deals with us in a way that we don't expect, because that's, that's sort of his thing. He doesn't deal with us in a way that we would typically uh, expect. It was only a few years ago when, when one of my sons was on a baseball team, and uh, he wasn't having a, a very good season. In fact, uh, he didn't have a base hit uh, by this point in the season yet. And uh, he was up to bat. And I'm telling you, uh, I was praying like I've never prayed before. God, please, if you would just let my son get a hit right here uh, as, he's, as he's up to bat, just give him this, this one little bit of encouragement so he doesn't feel so defeated by all this. Uh, just let him have this one base hit, please, God. That was my prayer. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, was, I was praying like I had never prayed before. And then guess what happened? He's up to bat and he gets hit by the very next pitch. He gets hit by the pitcher, okay? He got plunked right in the shoulder. I was coaching first base that particular day, so I was the first one to see him after he got hit. And as he made his way to first, I could see that he had big old tears in his eyes that he was holding back. You know why? Because it really hurt, okay? And I remember thinking as he stood there on first base, I'm standing right next to him, he's standing on first base uh, holding back the tears. And, and this was my, my, my prayer, in response to God in that moment. It was, really God? Really? <laughs> this is how you decided to answer that prayer? I ask, my, I ask that you give my son a base hit and he gets hit by a pitch. Perfect, perfect. See, if I'm God, how do I answer that prayer? Right, if I was God, he's gonna hit a home run, right? Of course. And maybe, if I, maybe, maybe, just maybe, if I'm, I'm being, you know, thinking, thinking ahead here, if I'm trying to, to teach him a lesson about persevering, uh, I might let him make contact, but maybe get thrown at it first or let him have a respectable pop fly or something like that. But hit by a pitch, that is the last way I would choose to answer that prayer, okay? And I know what some of you are thinking right now, or at least he got on the base. Yes, that's true. He got on the base, but, but again, it hurt. It hurt really bad. So, so what's the takeaway here? Perhaps that, let me put it this way, God is predictably unpredictable, okay? You see, we don't like to think that God somehow uses, dare I say, ordains pain and suffering, but, but if there's anything we can draw out of Holy Week, out of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it's this. The road to glory came by way of of pain and suffering. The road to glory came by way of pain and suffering, meaning that sometimes, maybe not even sometimes, maybe, maybe we need to see most often. Most often for the Christian, the predictable path will take us on a, a path that is uh, at the very least not comfortable. And that, that's what we can always, we can predict that. You know, but again, that we, we don't like to think of God that way. We like to think of a God that, that wants to, to give us success and give us uh, a smooth sailing life and, and not have any obstacles in our way. But, but again, most often, that's not the path he takes us on. At the very least, it's an uncomfortable path, okay? And so now back to Esther. Remember where we left off in the account of Esther last week? If, if we were choosing our heroes, for instance, the ones we might think God wants us to model our lives after, we'd probably pick someone like, like Queen Vashti. Remember, we, we wouldn't pick Easter. Or we, excuse me, I'm still confusing the two. We wouldn't pick Esther, right? Queen Vashti stuck up, uh, stood up 
uh, to the man that was was taking advantage of her. Esther, well, well, she's not exactly standing up to anyone, not yet, okay? Which is why you have to realize that that this is an account that God tells us. He doesn't use the heroes in this narrative, okay? He uses the weak. Uh, he uses uh, uh, the, the marginalized. Strength comes through weakness. weakness. That's, that's God's pattern. Strength through weakness, okay? It's almost like a paradox. Let's see how this, uh, this account plays out. And uh, as I told you, how we would do here this week, among other things, is find out why the story is in the Bible. That was the, the question I posed to you, uh, I believe, last week. Why is, this, why is this account in the Bible? There's no mention of God in this, this book of the Bible, Esther. Uh, there's no mention of the, of the temple or prayer or anything, but it's here for a reason. It's here in the Bible for a reason. God is there. This is what we were saying last week. God is there even when you think he's not there. Okay, even in a situation like my son getting hit by a pitch when I'm begging for, for uh, God to show me his favor, show, show my son uh, some favor here in this, in this, uh, uh, this at-bat, uh, he gets hit by a pitch. Did God not hear my prayer? No, he's there. He's there, even when I think he's not there, even when he's answering my prayers, not like how I would answer prayers, right? He's there. This, uh, why is the book of, 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 uh, of Esther in the Bible when, when God's not mentioned in, uh, in it at all? We're going to find that out today. Okay, so let's look at the third chapter of Esther. Uh, we'll read the opening verses of, of this chapter. And uh, in these verses, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Haman. Okay, let's see what we learn about Haman. And uh, once again, I'm going to try and share my screen virtually here. Um, this is, there's one day I'm not going to fumble through this like, uh, like I do every time. Share screen. Here we go. Mm. Where is it? Ah, oh, right here. Here we go. Esther. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained uh, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, uh, back to the big screen here. Uh, so what did we learn about Haman after reading that, uh, that, um, that, uh, those six verses? Uh, what are some things that we can deduce about Haman? Uh, he's powerful. Uh, he wanted everyone to bow down to him, including and especially the Jews. In fact, uh, as we read there, he wanted to destroy all the Jews. Okay, so, so those are a few things we learn about Haman. But then there's this. Uh, Mordecai didn't want to bow down to Haman. Now, why do you think that is? In general, yeah, sure, there might be a sense of pride in all of us that don't, we don't want to bow down to anybody. But why specifically in this account did Mordecai not want to bow down to Haman? Was there something about Haman that would make him not 
uh, bow worthy. Okay, let me let me read for you perhaps the most important thing about Haman. Okay, it's revealed to us in the very first verse of the chapter, and dare I say it, this is the reason uh, that we have this book in the Bible. Okay, a book that doesn't even mention the name of God. This is why it made it in the Bible. These three words are what gives this book meaning. Okay, these three words are what gives this entire book a storyline of biblical inclusion. Without these three words. We might have a great story, but do we have a biblical story? Those three words are, are you ready? The three words in verse one are Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Now, why is that such a big deal? We're trying to ask, why is this, why is this book of the Bible uh, included here when it doesn't even mention God? Because of those three words, Haman the Agagite. Okay, an Agagite is a descendant of Agag. All right, the king of the Amalekites. All right, the Amalekites were, were uh, the ancient enemies of Israel. And let me take a, a moment to remind you of one of the greatest scenes in Israel's ancient history. Do you remember this scene? Uh, Moses and his general Joshua were fighting against the Amalekites. Okay, and uh, this is all the way back in Exodus, by the way. Uh, so Moses and his general were, were uh, Joshua were fighting against the Amalekites, and God told Moses to raise the staff. And so long as Moses raised his staff, they would win. Do you remember, remember this scene? And uh, whenever he, he would lower the staff, okay, if he lowered, put the staff down to rest, the armies of the Lord would lose, okay? So they literally set Moses up on a stone, and Aaron and Hur literally lifted his arms from both sides to help, help keep his arms up. And, and they did that long enough that Joshua was able to defeat the armies of the Amalekites, okay? So Israel defeated the Amalekites, and we're told in the book of Deuteronomy that the Amalekites were people who did not fear God, and here in Exodus, by the, by the strength of God, they were defeated in battle. But listen to these next uh, verses. This is also from, from Exodus, uh, Exodus 17, starting in verse 14. Remember, we're asking, why is this book in the Bible? To understand why Esther is in the Bible, we have to go back to Exodus 17, all right? This is Exodus 17, uh, verses 14 and following. Exodus 17, 14 and following. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Did you hear all that? Are you starting to see the significance as to why it's such a big deal that the book of Esther, why, why is it such a big, big deal that, that Haman and Agagite, a descendant of the people of Amalek, uh, why is this detail included in this book? All the way back in Exodus, God made a promise. He gave his word. He said he would blot out the memory of Amalek. And not just in the immediate sense, it says from generation to generation. Now, let's go back to our account in Esther. What would it say about God and his promise if Haman had his way with the Jews? You, you see how the story is shaping up? If Haman had his way with the Jews, God is not a covenant-keeping God. Okay, so, so Mordecai sees this guy, uh, Haman. Mordecai, remember, this is Esther's uncle. 
he sees this guy Haman elevated to the highest position in the kingdom. And the king orders that everyone bow down when he walks by as a sign of respect. And when Mordecai sees this, he says to himself, bow to an Amalekite? No thanks. No thanks. Haman is furious now. See, the historical context is not lost on him either. He doesn't want to bow down. He doesn't want to bow down to me, he's thinking. Okay, well, we'll see about that. This means war, okay? And, and in so doing, Haman declares war not just on Mordecai, but on God's people who just so happened to be, or excuse me, on, on, uh, on Mordecai's people who just so happened to be God's people too. And God swore to blot out the Amalekites. And the most powerful man in the kingdom, save the king, has resolved to, and I'm quoting here, destroy all the Jews. All right? Now, so again, if, if Haman has his way and he destroys all the Jews, what does that say for God's word that was given all the way back in Exodus? You see the tension we have here? It's not just a mass extermination of, of people that, were, that, uh, that, that brings us this conflict. It's, it's the beyond uncomfortable thought that it's the question that's going to have to be answered one way or the other. Is God a God of his word? Will God do what God said he would do? Would he allow the Amalekites to prevail over his people? Is God a covenant-keeping God? Even hundreds of years after, after he said what he said, after he made his promise. Or is God, put yourself in the, in the shoes of, of Haman right now. Is God really absent right now? If, if this is about to happen, if this really goes down, God has to be absent, doesn't he? So, so he, he's there, though. We have to remember, he's there even though we can't see him there. And that, that, that works for your present circumstances, too. He's there even though you can't see him. All right, when my son gets hit by a pitch, he's there even though I can't see him. He's at work, though we don't understand how he works. All right? And do you see how, how, the, how this compares to Easter? All right, I didn't misspeak there. How Esther compares to Easter. Is God a God of his word? Is he at work even when we can't see him? Uh, where were all of Jesus' disciples after he was crucified? What were they thinking? God, God is absent now. He's not in this. What happened? It's all fallen. Did, did, did God abandon us? Or was his plan about to unfold before their very eyes? Okay, let's, uh, let's not string this along any further. And let's see what happens. This is, this is really just, uh, this is fantastic. I love this. I love this account. Here's, here's the plan that, uh, that Haman hatches. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Uh, let me see if I can share that with you real quick. Verse 8 of chapter 3 says this. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Okay, so, so that's, that's Haman's plan. All right. He, he decides uh, that he's, he has a plan to destroy the Jews. And he never mentions the fact that it's the Jews he's trying to eliminate. You know, rather, he just speaks in generalities, uh, even, even tries to, the, to appeal to the king's sense of greed, offering to pay 10,000 talents to the king's treasury, an enormous amount of money. And the king signs off on this plan, essentially telling him, do with the people and the money as you wish. Okay. Now we have to remember the nature of this king. If you remember from last week, this is the king who threw this opulent party that, that lasted six months. That's what was uh, covered at the beginning of the book of Esther. 
and uh, and so appealing to a sense of greed and and uh, and materialism is, is probably a good move. And and so once his plan is in motion, once Haman hatches this plan, Mordecai gets wind of it, and it tears him to pieces. He, he's he's thrown into mourning as as the exact day is set whereby the extermination of the Jews will begin. And he, and, he, and so he calls for Esther's attendant, so he can send uh, Esther a message, which basically says this. Here's, here's Haman's plan. Y- you, Esther, you have to do something about this. Y- you've got to go to the king and, and plead for our lives. Go before the king and plead, Esther. Okay? So Esther tells them this. Let's uh, read this uh, from, uh, we're in Esther chapter 4 now, starting in verse 11. Uh, Esther 4, verse 11, says this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except by the one whom the king holds out on the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the, uh, into the king these 30 days. Okay. So she basically tells Mordecai, this is Esther uh, telling Mordecai, I, I can't go before the king. Uh, the rule is he calls for you and you go see him. That's it. Okay. Anyone who comes in without being called dies. Unless it just so happens you catch him at a good time. And you know that you've caught him at the right moment because you don't die. All right. Uh, instead, he extends to you the golden scepter and you live. But if you approach the king without being called, it doesn't matter who you are, you die. And even further, the king hasn't called for Esther in some 30 days. So so maybe she's fallen out of favor with the king. Maybe she's no longer the queen du jour, okay? So going into the king's presence to plead for God's people, did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? Was that a whisper of Christ I just heard? I'll say it again. So going into the king's presence to plead for God's people, okay? And in this situation, pleading for the life of the Jews— who, if you'll remember last week, aren't exactly a treasured minority here. It's quite the risk she's taking. It would be risking her life and nothing less. So basically, she's telling Mordecai, look, I'm not so sure I can do this. So Mordecai sends a word back to her. This is is now uh, verse verse 13, same chapter. Let's go to the uh, screen here. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. All right, so he's saying, look, Esther, one way or another, you'll be sniffed out. They'll, they'll figure out that you're a Jew and, and you won't be any more safe than anyone else. Okay, verse 14. For, you, for, if, for if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. One way or the other, he's saying, one way or the other, God will deliver his people, he tells Esther, but you and your family, Esther? This is what Mordecai suggests to Esther, basically he's telling her, Esther, God will deliver his people, but but if you, in the position that you're in, if you do nothing about this, God help you. And he tells Esther in the second half, verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther 
maybe, maybe this is why you're in the position that you're in. Okay. Maybe this is why you've had to go through all that you've had to go through, which again, must've been some really compromising situations. Maybe, maybe this is why you of all people, a young Jewish orphan girl have ended up in the most unlikeliest of places in the palace of the most powerful person in the world. It's crazy when you think about it, isn't it, Esther? It's one in a billion. And this makes me stop to consider, do you ever consider the place you're in? Do you ever stop to consider why you live where you live, whatever your circumstances? Do you ever stop to consider why I'm here in this job? Or why am I at this station in life? Or why do I have these present circumstances around me? See, with God, there are no accidents. He's doing something. He's at work. Even, even in the most benign details. All right? Remember, like we were saying last week, with, with the Lord, there are no it-just-so-happened moments. Remember, as we, were, we left off last week, uh, we just happened to see that Mordecai happened to be at the right place at the right time and just, just so happened to overhear the, the plot that was uh, planning, to, the, these men were planning to execute the king. He just happened to overhear that, happened to, to, to share that with Esther so Esther could then uh, send that uh, word to the, the king and, and thus save his life, Okay. You have to realize that there are no just-so-happened moments. Life is nothing more than a series of events strung together by a sovereign, omnipotent God. He weaves it all together. You know, Esther, maybe, maybe this is why you're here for such a time as this. You are here, Esther, because you are God's chosen instrument to mediate between the king and God's people. Do you hear that? All right, then verse 16 she says to Mordecai, she says this, verse 16. Says this. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for these days, night or day. And I, uh, I and my young women will go also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Here we go. Did you see that? That's incredible. You see the evolution of our character? Remember last week how we all wished for a hero like, like Vashti, who refused to obey the king and, 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 and uh, the king's command to parade around the palace before all the king's buddies? We said, there's a, there's a person of good character. There's someone who has principles. There's someone, there's someone who'll do what's right regardless of the consequences. Then there was Esther doing everything exactly as she was told, even though it meant uh, hiding her identity as a Jew, even though it meant uh, sleeping with a man who wasn't her husband yet. Now look at her. She, tell, she tells Mordecai, I'll, I'll go to the king, even though it may be against the law, and if I die, I die. You see, she's been changed. She's been changed, she's been, she's been transformed. God accomplishes his purposes through people. He doesn't have to, but he does, okay? And he accomplishes those things not because of who we are, but because of who he is. To accomplish his purposes, he changes us. He renews us. He molds us into his image so we arrive at the point where we say, if I perish, I perish. What could be more important? And, and, what, this, and what this should tell us is that we're, we're never too far gone, are we? Because they are God's purposes, because it's his design, he will change you 
to accomplish what he will accomplish. All right. You know, this verse, uh, Philippians 1, 6, it's one of my favorites. Um, if you don't know this one, you should commit this one to memory. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. He will bring it to, not he might, not he probably will. He will bring it to completion. He finishes the work he began, all right? So what happens here in our story? Esther, Esther goes before the king. Does she die? No, she doesn't die. The king sees her and he gets all starry-eyed over her and he extends to her the golden scepter. The king is pleased at the sight of the mediator. Hear that? It's another whisper. And he asks her, what can I do for you? Ask whatever you want and I'll give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom, he says. And she says, all I request is that you attend my banquet. I want to hold a banquet and I want you to be there. A banquet that I've prepared for you, the king, and Haman. And he says, of course, I'll do anything for my queen. Now, meanwhile, okay, meanwhile, as, as this banquet is being prepared, Haman is over here making arrangements to have Mordecai hanged. Remember Mordecai, that's Esther's uncle, the one that wouldn't bow down, the, the Jew that, that wouldn't bow down to the, to the uh, Amalekite. And once again, we have to remind ourselves and ask, is God a covenant-keeping God? Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman is literally building the gallows for Mordecai now. Will God allow the Amalekites to have victory over the Jews when he made a covenant not to years and years prior? Does God keep his word? Okay. So Haman is, is literally constructing a special gallows for Mordecai. It's tailor-made just for Mordecai, custom fit, uh, bigger than anyone else has ever imagined, and he just can't wait to hang him up. Okay. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the king is having trouble sleeping. So he calls for his attendant to come read to him the king's chronicle, which I can only imagine is such an exciting read, don't you think? And, and he gets to a certain point, the part about Mordecai being the one who overheard the plot at the, at the king's gate to kill the king. Remember that from last week? The king says, hey, that's right. That guy Mordecai, he was responsible for, for saving my life. Did we ever reward that guy? And the record reader says, let's see here. Um, no, no, we never did. We never did reward that guy. And literally, right as Haman was about to enter and ask the king about stringing up Mordecai on the gallows, the king notices him outside the court and calls for him. The king asks Haman, Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, being the prideful guy that he is, he beams because in his mind, he believes the king is talking about him. He believes the king wants to reward and honor him. So Haman answers him. This is, uh, this is how he answers him. This is uh, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7, he says this. What a chump. He says this. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one uh, of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city. Proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Man, what a, what a weasel, right? Let, he's saying, let him have the full, he thinks he, think he's talking about himself, let him have the full unbridled approval of the most high king. And the king tells Haman, you know what? That's a great idea. 
go find Mordecai and give him all that you just said. Leave nothing out. And it doesn't tell us uh, how he reacted, how Haman reacted, but we can only imagine his shock. What? Who? Mordecai? Mordecai? Go get Mordecai and do that? Yes, run along now. Do exactly as you said. Then Haman, he's got to parade Mordecai through the town on the king's horse wearing the king's robe. Can you believe that? It, it must, he, he must have been so sure that this day the Amalekites would have victory over God's people. Not today, Haman, all right? God keeps his promises. Was there, was there any sense that God's enemies believed that they had victory over Christ as he lay in the tomb? Not today. He is not here. And, and, and uh, what he just did on a small scale through Mordecai He's about to do on a bigger scale with Esther. Esther holds the banquet uh, with the king and Haman in attendance, and, uh, and she spills the beans, the whole bucket. This is, uh, this is chapter 7, uh, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. Getting to exciting conclusion here. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and it pleased the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, for for we have been sold and I, my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, we had been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen, right? So uh, you know at this point, Haman must be shaking in his puffy pants right about now. Just like Haman did, Esther appeals to the king's self-interest. He says, rather than killing all the Jews, if he would have just made them slaves, I would have said nothing. At least at least you would have the, the benefit of free labor. But by killing them, you're losing a valuable asset. And the king is furious. He's, whose idea was this? And Esther answers him, the foe and enemy is Haman. Okay, and in one of the more ironic moments of the Bible, Haman is then hanged on the very gallows he prepared for Mordecai. And Esther begs and pleads on behalf of the Jews that they would be spared. And the king, perhaps feeling sympathetic for his queen, is inclined to help but but there's just one problem. The edict has already been declared that, that, that on the day set forth, the extermination of the, of the Jews would begin, okay? And because it was an edict of the king, sealed with the signet of the king, the edict couldn't be revoked. The only way a decree could be countered was by issuing one more decree that made it difficult or impossible to implement the first decree. So that's what he did. Essentially, he decrees that if the Jews were attacked, they were free to defend themselves by any means necessary. And we're told in the ninth chapter, uh, in language that's very similar to what we read earlier from Exodus, that no one could stand against the Jews, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And just like that, from chapter 9, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated him. Why? Because God keeps his word. And even though it would seem that he's not there, though it seems he's absent, though though his name never so much is is even whispered in the book, he shows us once again, he's there. 
he keeps his word and he's not willing to see his people, his children destroyed because he swore by his own name that he would save his people. Now, before we finish up here, I have to ask you one question. It's the very same question I've been asking you with every account that we've studied. Where is Christ? Where's Jesus in this account? Where are the fingerprints that points us to Christ in this account? Where's the shadow picture of Christ in the book of Esther? Do you see one? Uh, normally I might open up the floor. Oh, here we go. Here's something from, uh, from someone. Let's see. Interesting to note that per Haman's word, those who find favor with the king are given a crown and clothes covered with the robes of the king himself. Astute observation from the Wilhite household. Is that a whisper of Christ? I dare say it is. Anyone else have any hints here? How do we see the, the, the shadow picture or the, the fingerprints of Christ in the book of, of Esther? Uh, yes, being robed in the, in, in the very king's robe is one. Um, see if anyone else has anything real quick. If not, let me go ahead and wrap it up because I know we're getting uh, dangerously close to, to the service time here. So uh, let me wrap it up. Esther saved her people. How? How did she save her people? First, she identified with her people. She saw their condition, saw that they were condemned, so she identified with them and put herself under condemnation, risking her life, saying, if I perish, I perish. She was willing to give away her life to try and save her people. Did you hear that? She was willing to give away her life to save her people. Christ did the very same thing, did he not? He saw his people's condition. He saw that they were living under condemnation, that they would die. So he put himself in harm's way. And he said, if I perish, I perish. And he did. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Because Esther identified with her people, she could also mediate for her people. Because she stood under the same condemnation as her people, she could go before the throne of power in a way that no one else could. And listen to this. She stood before the throne of power, and because she received favor there, because she received favor there, that favor was then imputed to her people. Because she had favor before the throne of power, her people were given favor. Does that sound familiar? That's, that's a story of Christ, all right? Jesus Christ sat upon the ultimate throne and put it aside. Philippians 2, 5, and 8, which is probably my, my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Let me read this one. With this one, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Love this verse. And, and I feel like I end every lesson with this. I should tell you something about the dense nature of, of, of this verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he sat on that throne, though he had that, that, that place in the, in, the, in the holy court, all right? But he emptied himself. He set his royalty aside by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If I perish, I perish. It's the story of Christ. Esther was, was, was willing to to give up her crown, and, and Christ was too, and he did. Esther approached the throne and pleaded for her people. Christ approaches the throne on your behalf right now. The risen Christ approaches the throne on your behalf and pleads for you. We're told in, in uh, Hebrews 7 that he lives to make intercession for us, for you. Because Esther did, her people lived. 
and because Christ did, we live too. All right, let's put a pin in that. That takes us to about 10 till. Uh, unless there are any final thoughts or comments, uh, we'll look in the chat window really quickly and see if there's anything else. I want to give you uh, enough time to log off of this and then log on to, uh, to the Easter service, which is about to start in 10 minutes. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll just say uh, thank you all for taking the time to, to join me this morning and, uh, and celebrate uh, Esther Sunday on Easter. And again, note the parallels. Note the parallels here that, uh, uh, that we see in, in the story of Esther and, and what we're about to celebrate in, uh, in, in the, I was going to say in the sanctuary, but in the virtual sanctuary. Uh, Christ laid aside uh, his, his, his place of power, his place of authority. He's, he laid it down so that, uh, so that you and I uh, could be imputed, given that imputed righteousness, that, that position, that favor, that was only given to one person, but now is, has been given to us. And because he defeated death, uh, you and I are, are guaranteed the same. That's the deposit, that you and I are, are, are given that, that same deposit, that, that Jesus Christ was the first fruits, okay? We're told the first fruits, that he, he is the, the, the first of many. Uh, he is the first, we are the many. Uh, we will be raised just like him. And uh, I can't think of a better thought uh, to head into... Uh, uh, Easter uh, worship service right now. So I'm going to close in prayer and then uh, um, we'll, we'll join and worship together. And then I hope to see you here next week. Okay. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the story of Esther and we thank you for its inclusion in the Bible because it shows us once again that you are a covenant keeping God. You do as you will say, just as you said, uh, Jesus would rise from the dead and he did we can take comfort in the fact that you are a God of your word. And just as you told us now that, that he is the first fruits, we will be raised like him. And we can take that to the bank because as once again, we've seen all throughout the scriptures, you keep your word and nothing in heaven and earth will, will ever change that. We thank you for that promise. Pray this in, in the name of Christ, for our sake we pray it. Amen. Love you guys. And I really hope to see you in person soon. Uh, but until then, we'll keep doing this, and I'll see you here next week. See you in service.